You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Do you ever wonder what Patanjali would have thought about social media? As much as I love learning about yoga philosophy from ancient texts, sometimes those texts feel pretty far removed from today's world. Many of the themes are totally relevant, though, even if they're not entirely clear. That's why I really appreciate getting to talk yoga philosophy with people who are equally steeped in the questions and concerns of life in 2022. This week's podcast guest, Jeevana Heyman, is a perfect example. Jeevana is the founder and director of the Accessible Yoga Association. He's the co-founder of the Accessible Yoga Training School, the author of Accessible Yoga Poses and Practices for Everybody, as well as Yoga Revolution, Building a Practice of Courage and Compassion. Basically, when it comes to accessible yoga, Jeevana literally coined the term. In today's conversation, we discuss his most recent book, Yoga Revolution, which delves into the ways ancient philosophy applies to contemporary social issues. We focus primarily on the Yoga Sutras in this episode, but his book equally references the Bhagavad Gita. If you are at all interested in yoga philosophy and social justice, get your hands on this book ASAP. It's a brilliant distillation of the most important themes from yoga philosophy described in a way that feels relevant, salient, and alive. And if you've never quite been able to get into yoga philosophy before, I bet this book changes your mind. Let's jump right into this conversation with Jeevana Heyman about Patanjali's Yoga Sutra for today's world, and I'll see you on the other side. Jeevana, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'd love to start with a little bit of your story, your background, how you found yoga, and why you started teaching. Mm. Well... The short version? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> okay. Well, the short version. Well, amazingly, I got, I, I, my grandmother taught me yoga when I was a small child, which is kind of interesting. She was, um, she lived in LA in the fifties and she was kind of a very spiritual person, always, always seeking. And she studied with some incredible people, including Jay Krishnamurti and Swami Satchidananda, who later became my teacher. So Anyway, I kind of had that in my background. And then after college, well, actually, even during college, I, I really got involved with AIDS activism, which I write a bit about in the book. And, and it was really stressful. I was losing a lot of friends. So many people were sick and dying. And so I was searching for some way to like care for myself because I was just, the grief was really getting to me. I was getting sick actually just from that. And so I found yoga that was around. 1991 with an incredible teacher named Kazuko Onodera, who I talk about a little bit in the book, but she really changed my life. She, she was just, she kind of got the whole practice and she like took me under her wing and she taught me to cook and garden. And we did a Japanese tea ceremony and all these amazing things. And she kind of showed me how yoga was really this whole life practice, you know, and really how spirituality influences everything we do. And she was a student of Swami Satchidananda also. So then I went and studied with him directly. And, you know, and I, one thing I mentioned in the book is that I, 
my, my best friend, Kurt, died of AIDS in 1995, and he had encouraged me to become a yoga teacher. I was just studying and practicing, but he was really encouraging me to do that. And so I, I actually did graduate teacher training just a few months before he died. And I knew when I, when I went into teacher training that I, I basically just wanted to share yoga with people with HIV and AIDS, uh, which is then what I did right after. So one thing I appreciated about your book a lot is how you framed the whole conversation and, and really the system of yoga as this reconciling of things that seem like opposites. Because to me, that's the space that is really interesting. <laughs> it's like we can make things two-dimensional or we can go deeper beyond that. And that's what I feel like you do so well in this book. So I'm excited to dig into a few of the topics. And I wanted to start with capitalism. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Because you talk, one of the things you say is that capitalism is basically the opposite of yoga. Yeah. And yet as yoga teachers, we're operating in this capitalist culture. Yeah. And we're trying to make our living. We're trying to survive by teaching yoga. It is this really weird juxtaposition. And I'd love to hear how you personally have and are navigating that. Yeah. Well, first, I, I really appreciate that insight about the book. And I, I hadn't thought of it quite that way before, but I think you're right that I generally find that truth lies in the kind of gray space. Another way I like to think about that, though, is just that according to yoga philosophy, you have the natural world, which is made up of duality. And then you have the spiritual world, which is not. And, and I think that what's challenging always about studying, teaching, and even practicing yoga is going back and forth between those two worlds and be able to hold both realities, you know, at the same time. And I, and I love that challenge of living in, living in the world, but not. And I, it's like, there's a lot of, you know, images of that used in spirituality, like being in the world, but like the lotus in the mud. I think that's how I feel about capitalism too. It's like, well, when I'm living in the world, I don't have a choice. I have to survive. I have to eat and feed my family. Like, I, and luckily I have a chance to teach yoga and get paid for it as a way to do that. Now, at the same time, I don't actually think yoga is something you can buy or sell. Like on the spiritual level, that's just not how it works. The teachings are universal truths that are available to everybody. So I realized that what we're, and I think I said this in the book, what we're buying and selling is more like time with us or time in a studio together, you know, or I don't know, the, the, the kind of experience of yoga creating the, it's like, create, it's like setting the scene. That's what we do as yoga teachers. We like set the scene for people to then have the yoga experience, but we can't buy or sell the actual yoga itself. Absolutely. I'm, I'm hundred percent in agreement on that. And I find that to be a helpful lens to look through this question of capitalism because our own time is finite. Yoga is infinite, but our time is finite. A lot of yoga teachers feel guilt or shame around charging for their time because they have this story, yoga should be free, which of course it should be, and it is. 
And yet it's not really possible unless we have a way of getting means, our means and needs met in another way. Like we have family money or a partner or another job. We do need to be paid for our time as teachers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's important to to keep again the, the duality to, to keep both things there. Both are true, and so neither way is right or wrong. And and so saying yoga is free or saying we should get paid, both both are true. And I I live in that world of going back and forth. And it sounds kind of like you know, when I say it out loud, it sounds like I'm just kind of indecisive or you know like making up excuses. But I'm I'm serious when I say like. I can charge for yoga and still know that it's free. I can offer someone something for free because I feel like it. You know what I mean? Even though I know I want to get paid, like I can go back and forth. I also think that the the spiritual teachings and the the philosophy of yoga needs to guide us when we are acting as yoga teachers. So I would say that even though I do charge for my teaching, I try to address capitalism in my work and head on and i and i speak up against it as much as i can and i address it in a few ways one is that i always offer scholarships that are easy to get it's not a complicated process i offer so there is free access available for people who really don't have the means i offer tier pricing for everything i do so that my point is that both of these things are true but i also need to find a way to respect the spiritual reality in the way that i live in the world I don't know if that makes sense. Absolutely. It does. And I don't think it's wishy-washy to go back and forth or to question. (laughs) I actually think that it's a sign of somebody who really cares. Yeah. Right. Uh, I'm always a bit suspicious of people who are a little too confident about their point of view. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I agree. And I think that's what yoga is all about is questioning yourself. You know, it's like yoga is about questioning the, the mind and your, your identity and who you think you are and your belief system. And that's what yoga is about. So if you're a yoga practitioner and you think, you know, then yeah, I don't know what you're doing. (laughs) You know, and this is really related to capitalism because a lot of the structures of capitalism reward certainty. They reward sound bites. They reward memes, right? Well, they reward professionalism and mastery like i have to say like this is just a pet peeve of mine so i hope i don't offend you but like the idea of a master class kind of drives me crazy because i'm just like how can you be a yogi and give a master anything like you it's like if you're a yoga practitioner you're learning all the time so i see myself as a student i call myself a teacher but only in public (laughs) you know it's like if i'm really a practitioner i'm constantly learning about myself that's the only truth that I know. Yeah. I'm not offended by that at all. I don't like the term masterclass. I don't use it either, but okay. I think that most people who do use it are just not being careful, meaning that they're not really examining their language carefully. Yeah. I think there's probably a few people who use it, who are, I don't know, like con- more consciously using it and, and have a different belief system than you and I, but I think at least the listeners of this podcast there's a lot of like really sincere, humble people are the ones who reach out to me and talk to me. Right. So yeah, no, no offense there. We're on the same page. And 
you know, I think one like questioning our language is a great practice as part of our yoga practice is like what I say represents what I think. So let me examine what I say as a way to help me understand what I think. Right. And, and it's always changing and growing. And, you know, I, I, like just a minute ago, I used the word yogi. And actually I would say that I don't really want to use that word. Like, I don't think that I am a yogi and that I don't, my life isn't hundred percent dedicated to practice. I'm a family. I have a family and I'm a householder and I think I'm a yoga practitioner, but to call yourself a yogi, I think is someone who's just in my mind living as probably as a monastic, completely dedicated hundred percent of the time to their practice. And in some sense I want to be, but I don't know if I'm there. And I, and I, so yeah, language is always changing. And also, like you said, language reflects the mind. And so there's it's limited, very limited. I think language is even more limited than the mind, but in a, in a sense, that is the gift of it, right? Because when we limit something that we simplify it and it becomes a bit easier to examine, like the mind, I think is more complex than language and and much harder to, to study and to, to understand. But actually that takes me into another topic, which is the conversation around tapas specifically within the context of what we now understand about the mind and, and how the human mind slash body works, which is that we cannot have pleasure without pain. Like that's not how we're built. We're not designed to experience pleasure and not experience pain. So part of your conversation in your book around tapas is, is how we make meaning out of pain and suffering. And you can overdo both sides, right? You can go too far. I don't understand asceticism very well personally. So I don't have a lot of really intelligent things to say about it, but I I will say that I feel some hesitation and caution about that path. It seems like it can, it can go far out of balance as well. So I'd love to hear your description of tapas and your own relationship to this balance. I think, I think we need context for that conversation around tapas, because I, I think, yeah, like you said, it it can get easily out of balance. And when I look at the yoga teachings, like if you look at the yoga sutras of Patanjali, you know, he really emphasizes tapas. So he starts out book two, which is the portion on practice with that word, you know, with that concept tapas, Kriya yoga is the first sutra. And he, Kriya Yoga is made up of Tapas, Vajjaya, and Ishvara Panadana. And that's basically, Tapas is the beginning of how we practice yoga, according to Patanjali. And that's suffering. And it's not like, I don't think he's saying, well, he's saying a few different things. Some people say he's talking about discipline, like self-discipline. Some people interpret it as kind of accepting the suffering we have and learning about ourselves through that. And I, I like that idea, right? Kind of like you were saying that. But, but I think some people go the other side and say, well, asceticism, meaning they actually look for suffering. They actually create suffering as a kind of purification. And so like, you're right, there's like a whole spectrum of interpretation on that word and that concept in yoga. I find that what we seem to do in, in contemporary Western yoga is we focus only on the physical and we think of tapas as physical discipline and 
intense physical practice. And I think a lot of people get benefit actually from that. And I don't, so I don't, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I actually think for many of us, intense physical practice is necessary and it helps to, it helps to get our body calm and our nervous system calm so that we can turn inward, which is really what we're trying to do with yoga practice. But tapas is more than just intense physical practice. It's more than that kind of suffering. I, and I like to think of it as just a way of like the beginning of that journey inward. And like I said, I, maybe I should say it again. To me, the whole point of yoga is to turn inward and connect with a part of ourselves that is fine. Like according to the teachings, we have a spiritual nature, Atman or Purusha, the Sanskrit words, that is fine. That totally, that's, that's the place that is our, it's our true nature, it's our essence, our heart, whatever you want to call it. And that part of us is, is okay. It's also unchanging and immortal. So that's the part that lives on. It's also the part of us that is the same in, in every one of us, which is very important because that means we're equal on the spiritual level. And so I think what Patanjali is saying is that the first step towards connecting inward with that place is by looking at where you are suffering. And what he's saying is that suffering comes, and he actually says this a little bit later, suffering comes when we are basically attached to things. Actually, he says it earlier too. He even brings that up in the beginning in book one, Sutra 12. Well, he mentions it in 12, 13, and then in 15 and 16. I'll just mention that if people want to look at that under non-attachment. But Basically, what he's saying is that the suffering is a sign of where we're attached. And attachments are the things that we think we need outside of ourselves to make us happy, even though what he's told us already is that happiness arises from within. Happiness arises from connecting with our true self. So I guess what I'm trying to say in a long roundabout way <laughs> is that I actually think tapas is an opportunity to identify the places where we are mistakenly looking for happiness outside. Yeah. And so it has a point, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, there's a purpose and a benefit. No, I would say, I mean, I guess benefit. Yeah, benefit. What it brings to my mind too is the intention and the discipline to turn towards your suffering instead of away from it. Right specifically like emotional suffering. Like when we have uncomfortable feelings, our, our instinct, I don't know about you, but at least my instinct is like, how can I make this go away? Yeah. How can I either numb myself or protect myself or run away? And the yoga practice, as I have come to understand it says actually, and this is very much in alignment with what Western psychology now says too, is actually you need to turn towards that discomfort and you need to examine it and you need to get curious about it. And by doing that, that act of turning towards your discomfort, it will lessen the hold. It will lessen the grip of the discomfort and you can then learn from it. You can then examine it. You can, you can grow from it, which is sort of your point in the book, I think. Yeah. And I'd say, I'll say very openly that this is just my personal interpretation, right? That based on the study I've done, I don't pretend to be a scholar or a historian. And I just want to make that clear when I make these comments or 
it's just important that people understand this is my personal feeling. That's all it is. So I'll continue then and say that I think what exactly what you're saying is what Svadhyaya becomes. So if you look at Kriya Yoga in you know book two of the sutras, Sutra One, he says it's tapas and then Svadhyaya. So you have some pain, something is upsetting, especially emotionally, like you said. And rather than, I think you said it beautifully, like turn away or avoid, or we often go to addiction, to be honest. I think addiction is the thing that happens when we continue to turn away from the suffering. And I, I'm not blaming anyone. Like for me, it also comes out as anxiety. Like anxiety for me is the result of not looking at my suffering. Like it's, it's physical. It's very physical for me, anxiety, where I have physical symptoms. And I think that's the way my mind is dealing with my painful emotions. Anyway, so then he, he says, which is often, I mean, it's translated so many different ways, but it's self-study, or I like to think of it as reflection. But it's what's so interesting, if you compare it to Western psychology, is that within the yoga teachings, you have, you have the foundation of your spiritual essence there. And that, I think, might be lacking in Western psychology. And, and you know, it's a gift in spirituality and in yoga is that that we're already fine, that part of us, part of us is okay. And that changes the whole narrative, you know, that it, it's saying that Svadhyaya is, is actually looking at the suffering and why, why have I done this? Like, why have I become attached to, you know, like my children, for example, there's like a very common attachment that we have. And I know as a parent, it's, it's a big one, you know, like I, my emotions are affected by how my children are doing, even though I have no control over that. And so it's like, you know, I'm, I'm stuck in a sense, right? Like my happiness is based on their actions and, you know, my kids are older. And so like, how much do I ever, you know, or ever control them? Not at all. Anyway, so Svadhyaya so is that reflection. It's like looking back, looking in the mirror and seeing, wow, why have I become attached? Why am I allowing my state of mind to be based on what some something that's happening outside like where am i attached i guess is the question of svadhyaya and it's hard to talk about tapas and svadhyaya without then taking the next step into yeah. ishvara pranidhana right yeah. which is a little like it's a it's a release it's a surrender it's a yeah. what do you think is the relationship between vairagya and ishvara pranidhana I think he's saying the same thing in different ways. He's 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 like this master, I'm not saying masterful. He's a masterful teacher who's basically showing us in the first few sutras, he's showing us the, the context and his basic philosophy, and then showing us like so many multiple ways of accessing the same concept. So I think early, you know, in chapter one, he's talking about access and non-attachment. And he explains that non-attachment is freedom from selfish desire. And that we need to balance that with practice, with actually an active focusing inward. So it's like we actively focus inward and then we release and we let go of the external. And that's practice and non-attachment. And then later in Kriya Yoga, he's talking about this, what we talked about of like, oh, I have suffering. I'm, I'm suffering in some way. I have pain. Why? Where am I attached? And then, like you said, Ishvara Pranidhana, can I let it go and trust that I'm okay? I think that I think they're very, very closely connected to answer your question. I think that Vairaga is, is is basically saying that we need to have a clear vision. We need to realize that our, our minds are 
are clouded by all the things we want, all our desires. And in a way, Ishvara Pranidhana is saying it in a positive sense. It's saying part of you is fine. Part of you is already fine. And you can relax into that, you know, like you said. Yeah. So it's almost like Tapa Swadhyaya Ishvara Pranidhana is like a more detailed explanation of Abhyasa Varagya. I think so. I think, I mean, I think it's all the same. He's, I really think he's saying, he has a very straightforward message. And then he just tells us many different techniques to get there, including Ashtanga Yoga. It's like another whole, like, here, do it this way. And with very complex eight limbs of yoga. But I actually think that you could say any of those, any of those tools would work. You don't even need all of them. You could really practice Kriya Yoga, you know, which is Tapas, Vajraya, Ishvara, Prana, or you could practice, practice an non-attachment or practice the eight limbs. I mean, you can use any of those. And I think they are really effective. Great, because the eight limbs are my next topic. <laughs> <laughs> I figured. The last three limbs, sometimes called Samyama, Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi, I feel like they get glossed over in a lot of yoga education and yoga trainings, probably because people don't understand them as well, right? Because it's hard. Yeah, but I, but you're so great at describing this philosophy in words and language that is accessible, I think, to the modern mind and the modern context. So I would love to hear your take on Dharna, Dhyana, Samadhi, specifically how you have experienced them to contribute to Viveka? I appreciate that question. Again, you have such great questions. Well, I, I would just say that I like to start at the end, honestly. It's like, what is the goal? You know, and I said earlier, like, this is just my interpretation. And I know I'm a householder. I'm not a monk. And to be honest, there was a moment in my life where I almost became a monk. Uh, it was, I was very close. But luckily, my husband, I had just met him. We just started dating, and he saved me from a life, a monastic life. And so we've been together 28 years, almost, yeah, almost 29 now, I think. And that's also a spiritual practice. And so I guess I just want to give that frame that I'm coming to this as, as not a monastic. And I do think that these teachings, Patanjali's teachings in particular, really do, were designed for monastic life. And for someone who's a monk, and you would call them sannyasi or renunciate or a swami, a monk. My point in this book is trying to make the teachings accessible and applicable in our lives now, mostly through my own personal experience, because I feel like there's such powerful tools that often get either, like you said, glossed over or they, they seem way too complicated and not, not applicable to our lives right now. And I, I think they are. So... This is the most difficult part, I think, to apply because I don't think, I, I believe that, that Patanjali is talking about enlightenment in a way that I don't understand, honestly, like I don't pretend to understand that. And so I would, I would say I'm clearly reinterpreted, reinterpreting it into what I feel like I can relate to, which is a kind of blissful joy that I have experienced. So I just, I'm, I'm, Simplify. I'm oversimplifying. I'll just admit that from the outset. So I would say like dharna is concentration, dhyana is meditation, and then samadhi is considered enlightenment. But one, there's some really interesting words that are used for samadhi. One of those words is like isolation 
or a separation. And I always get really intrigued by that idea. I don't know why, but I actually think it's connection. And I, I think I think what Patanjali is really getting at, and and to be honest, I think we see this more in the Gita. And so I do talk, I probably talked even more about the Gita in the book than the sutras because I, I feel like the Gita speaks more to a family life and a householder, yeah, a householder practitioner. The underlying truth, like I mentioned earlier, of our spiritual nature is that it's the same amongst all of us. So we all share the same essence. So to me, I would say enlightenment is actually connection and feeling that, feeling that truth that exists within me, experiencing it there and also seeing it in the world, whether it's in other people or in nature or animals or both, like just feeling that connection beyond my limited egotistical nature the, of my mind. To me, enlightenment is actually that experience that I think we all kind of know naturally of love, honestly, like pure love that is, yeah, just like beyond, beyond time and space, like just sense of pure connection. I think that the word love for me, it's so wrapped up with the love of another person. You know what I'm saying? I ha I, I think I do follow what you're saying, but I'm not sure that I personally resonate with the word love for that because it's more like this connection that is so interwoven that there's no, that there's no longer a sense of self, right? There's no, there's no me to love you because we're the same. Right. It's not a relational romantic love. That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's, it's the love of the feeling, the feeling of love that you feel in your heart. There's no word to describe it. Honestly, it's beyond words, just the sense of, like I say, connection, like the love that makes me feel connected to, I think of it with my, my dog, honestly, like my dog and I, like we share this connection, you know, and I think, I think it's really easy to, or like when my kids were babies, there was a connection there that's hard to put into words that it's not based on any need being met. It is just experiential, being in the moment. And I think that's our nature. That's, that's the essence of who we are. And I think Patanjali is trying to get us back to there, potentially to have that experience all the time, you know, which would be amazing. And I mean, going back to your question, I think that Dharna, Dhyana, Samadhi is just is simply becoming, learning how to work with your mind in a really effective way. And, and I think the mind, my, my teacher would always say that the mind is the most powerful tool in the universe. And I think that's true. Like our minds are incredible. And I think we use up so much of our mental capacity with worry. And I should speak for myself. <laughs> I use up a lot of my mind capacity with worry and anxiety and thinking about the future and the past and other people and what they think about me and all that stuff. And I think if you really were to be able to, if you're able to focus your mind on something, it can be incredibly productive and effective. And I think that's what Dharna, Dhyana and Samadhi is about. And he goes on, if you look at, I mean, it's so interesting, if you read the third book, you know, of the Yoga Sutras, he then talks about all these incredible, uh, you know, powers that you get through Samyama, through that, focused ability. So he definitely is telling us the mind is powerful. And if you, I think, what does he say? If you meditate on a feather, you can levitate. I mean, there's like, if you reflect the light from other people's eyes, you become invisible. Like there's a lot of really weird powers in there. 
mean, I don't think we should get caught up in those, but I do think this, the takeaway for me is that my mind is an incredibly powerful tool. Am I using it in the most effective, productive way I can? Is it of service to me and to my community or not? I also really appreciated and felt some overlap or resonance with when you were talking about how focus doesn't have to be narrow focus, because I do think that Dharana is often taught as like, you know, you focus on a candle flame or yes. you focus on one little tiny thing at a time. And very recently I have started to practice a broader focus in my meditation and it uh-huh. has changed everything for me because, and some of this is related to, I think I have ADHD. And so I'm working on like getting diagnosed potentially. And, but anyway, this is kind of a big revelation. People with ADHD hyper-focus and they don't know how to zoom out to, to consciously choose where to focus next. So that's why they're always jumping focus because it's not skillful. It's not zoom out, make a conscious choice, zoom in. It's random. What caught my attention just was the next thing in front of me. Yeah. So where did you find that information? Was it just through your own practice or did somebody teach it to you? Cause it's been, this has been a recent thing for me and it was kind of a coincidence to see it in your book. Yeah. Well, my son has ADHD too. And I, I worked with him a lot and And I have a very active mind. I don't know if I have ADHD, but I am very, my mind is incredibly busy. And I think that's part of the source of my anxiety, to be honest, is that I'm always, I have multiple things going on at the same time. And I think it came out of my, I I describe an anxiety attack I had in the book that was about four years ago, which really made me stop my practice the way it had been done and find a new way to practice. And that's very true. I mean, I really had to start over. And that was a big piece of it is that I noticed that the effort I was making to control or stop my mind was counterproductive. And I found that there was an internal battle going on that was not leading towards any sense of or any nervous system regulation, which is what I was trying for, you know, with my anxiety. And so then I had the other experience and I noticed that when I would let it go and and actually allow my mind to wander, it was much more peaceful. And, and I also tend to be someone who's always doing multiple things at the same time. Like right now I'm really restraining myself, like while we're talking from drawing, because normally what I do when I'm on a zoom call is I'll draw the person (laughs) and I have like sketchbook after sketchbook from the last few years of, you know, COVID of people that I'm zooming with, but you know, I'm trying to focus here today and not do that with you. But I, what I'm trying to say is I embrace that aspect of my mind. And I talk about that in the book. My mind has a lot of, I don't know, it's very spontaneous. It's creative. I think it's, but I'll say it another way. I think the mind is a tool. I don't think the mind is me, you know, and that's what yoga is saying. Yoga is teaching us that that's not who we are. Our essence is like in this tiny place within our heart, that's where our essence lies. And the mind is more than just a tool. It's just like a driver of this incredible vehicle that we have for this lifetime, but it's limited and it's going to end. Like the mind and the body will die when I die, but my heart will continue. My spirit will continue. And I I have that sense that that's what the teachings have, have showed me. So I guess what I'm trying to say is why I think what Patanjali and the concentration ideas are coming out of is an effort to 
have mastery over the mind so that we can use the mind and the body as a vehicle to actually express whatever it is our spirit is here to do. But that may not be the best way for all of us to do it. And whatever way works is fine. And I think we see that in the world. If you look around, I see incredibly successful people generally are very creative and expressive. They might be artists or actors or I don't know what, but it's just, it doesn't feel like success is necessarily this limit, limiting effort or control. Well, I mean, it probably comes back to some kind of balance, right? Because if you're constantly off on the next creative project and leaving creative projects unfinished in your wake, then yeah. there's, you know, there's no, there's nothing I mean, you may be successful if you, frankly, if you are happy, I think you're pretty successful. <laughs> like that's my measure of success is if you found uh, yeah. some way to be happy in this world, I, that that's kind of my goal. But ultimately I, I do, I think you're right that there's many ways to be successful, but usually it's going to involve some kind of balance. It's going to involve some kind of self-awareness of what your natural tendencies are, what your natural gifts are, and some way to harness that in a way that is most, I don't want to say productive or effective, but I want to say like actually is supportive for you, I guess. Right. And, and I think it depends on your nature because like I'm, I'm more of an intellectual, like I'm not very connected to my emotions. That's just my nature. Like I think, I think about things. I know other people that are feeling, they're just feeling people. They, they work through emotion. That, that person has a very different practice they have to create than, than me. And, yeah. and what they do will look different. And, and what's most effective for them will be different than for me. And that's fine, you know. But in the end, I think the question for all of us is, are we using the tools we have available to, to, to serve ourselves so that we can have happiness, like you said, or, or peace at least, through this lifetime and potentially offer some service in the world. I think that's really the sign of a, a successful person is to be at peace with yourself and to be offering service in the world in some way. And, and that's very general, like that service could be anything. Right, it could be making beauty. Right, making art. It could be taking care of yourself. Like I had a, I have a friend who has a serious physical disability and really struggled with this idea. I remember she talked to me a long time ago about how she wondered how can she be of service to the world? Because most of her day was spent just taking care of her body. And I'm like, that's fine. Like that's service, right? You're taking care of yourself. That's amazing. Part of it is like not adding to more problems in the world. Like, are you you know, not making the world more painful for other people, like saying something nice to somebody, like that's service. It's very, it's very simple. Yeah. And that's a really helpful perspective because I do think that recently, especially there's been so much push in the yoga community and, you know, you, you talk about yoga and social justice and, and the overlap, yeah. but it's going to look different for everybody, you know, and, and one person cannot define what service looks like for another person. And I think that's for me anyway, that that's a big challenge internally is to not try to compare my service with other people and, and not to overly allow them to influence my vision of what I should be doing. I, I want outside perspectives. I want right. guidance for sure, but 
I don't necessarily need to overemphasize the guidance from people who don't actually know me (laughs) and use that outside perspective to override the inner teacher and Mm -hmm. the inner wisdom of, of learning for myself, what I can offer. I think that's a good point. I mean, social justice, like I say in the book, it's where my service has been because of where, who I am and where I have been in my life. That's, you know, and so I can talk about my personal experience and what I've learned through that. Let me answer this another way though. I actually think, I think it's a question of power too. The power comes into play here. And what our, what, what our responsibility is when we have power and hold power and privilege. And so like as a yoga teacher, for example, I, if I'm in a classroom, I already feel like I'm automatically in a position of power in that class. And so I have an additional responsibility in that position because I'm the teacher in that room. That just, that's what I mean is like, how do I, how do I use that power is, is part of the question of service and why I think it's connected to social justice, because I don't think that we can separate our responsibility from the reality of the natural world and the fact that people are struggling. People are struggling because of white supremacy, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, like all those isms that are an aspect of white supremacy impact our daily lived experience. And when we have power, we have then, like I said, this extra responsibility to be conscious of the way we use it. So I guess what I'm saying is we have, I think we have flexibility to have our service look however we want, except that when you're in a position of authority and power, then I think it shifts a little bit because then our responsibility is actually to the people that we're serving. There's a tendency, especially for a lot of yoga teachers who, who came into this field with big hearts and, and a desire to serve. There's a lot of voices trying to tell you what your service should look like. And there's a lot of voices telling you opposite things, right? So it's really easy to, to get stuck in a state of confusion and overwhelm because you got these different outside voices telling you things that are almost diametrically opposed sometimes. And so you, there is no way to just follow somebody else. You can't just follow somebody else's path. You have to trust the internal work that you're doing and you have to do the internal work, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. This is such an interesting topic. I, what I'm trying to get at in the book is that Yoga is an internal spiritual practice. So that's, so it's completely inward. And yet, if you're a householder, if you live in a world, you have then a responsibility to the people around you. And I think that what yoga does, part of that internal moving inward, working with your mind, like we talked about earlier, what happens when you do that, when you really learn how to focus your mind, however you do that, whether it's through concentration or not, but if you kind of gain some, I don't want to say mastery over yourself, it's more like when you become aligned internally, I think you have access to tremendous power. And I want to keep going back to that word. I think the yoga teachings are powerful tools that connect us to that internal power. I keep saying that word, but like this, in, it, I think that we then have a responsibility to consider how we use that in the world. Because if you, but what I see happening, is that sometimes 
I see spiritual bypassing happening in the in the yoga world where people say, oh, yoga is just personal spiritual practice. And they leave it there and they don't look at the next step, which is, well, what do you do with all that power that you find when you when you connect with yourself? Like when you connect with your heart, that's a source of love and tremendous possibility that exists for you. What do you do with that? It's really a question on it. And I'm, I'm sincere in that question. I really want people to reflect on what do you do with that, with what you find? Like, it's, it's not enough to just end there. there. There was an interesting study, I think I mentioned in the book about was at University of Buffalo around mindfulness, which is very similar to yoga, to Western contemporary yoga practice, I would say. And the study was a question of mind, the effect that mindfulness had on self-centeredness. And they, they, the study showed that, well, I, I always like to ask, but what do you think it showed? What do you think it showed, like the relationship between mindfulness and self-centeredness? Well, I imagine that there was a correlation, but I always like, whenever that happens, I always am like, well, are, are people who are interested in mindfulness more likely to already be self-centered or, or did it show like <laughs> after the mindfulness that their self-centeredness increased? Yeah. Well, so you're right in a way, because what it showed is that people who were already self-centered, like they research, they studied them before. If you had already marked high as a person who's self-centered, then mindfulness made you more self-centered. If you were not, if you were generally like a generous person or giving person, it made you more generous, more giving. So that's kind of what I'm trying to get at about yoga too, is that I think that yoga has the capacity to, to give us tremendous power and and to almost exaggerate what's already happening in the mind. And so if we don't do the work, the internal work of examining what's in the mind, especially in the context of ethics, and I think that's what yoga really says so clearly, right? Yama Niyama is very clear about ethical practices, how to be in the world ethically. If we don't follow those guidelines, and I think we can actually potentially cause more harm through our practice than good. You know what I'm saying? So it's important to reflect on what we're doing with that power we find in our practice. What's the next step? And that's what we call service. And yoga also has said clearly, like in the Gita, it's so clear that karma yoga service, seva, whatever you want to call it, is the way you act in the world, which means that you that, that is in alignment with the yoga teachings. And the reason it's an alignment is because you're acting in the world in a way that's not about what you'll get personally, because you, you know, through your practice that you already have all you need inside. So, so service is actually not about, it's not about volunteering or any particular thing. It's about acting in a way that is not based on your selfish needs. Anyway, I hope that made sense. Yeah. And it leads to my next topic <laughs> perfectly, which is your description of, of, again, this paradox between living a life of service and self-care mm -hmm. and where self-care fits in. And I imagine that, you know, just like anything, just like mindfulness can exacerbate tendencies that you already have. Self-care could could do the same. Like self-care could be quite selfish. It could be really about just like revolving your whole life around your own comfort. Yeah. Or it could be about resourcing yourself 
so that you can walk through the world more skillfully. Yeah. Once again, I think it's a spectrum. I don't, I don't know if there's an easy answer. It's just me. Self-care is that internally focused service, right? Like service to my body and my mind, meaning that again, it's not ego-based, but based on what my body and my mind need. And it can be hard to know. It can be hard to figure out what we need because we get a lot of cultural influence and influenced by people in our lives. And I would say, and also it's so different for each of us, depending on our, you know, identity. Like if you have a marginalized identity, then I would say the service you offer can needs to be to yourself because the world is constantly challenging you and trying to put you down. And if you feel like you're pretty stable, you have a lot of resource, you're well-resourced and your identity doesn't feel challenged when you're out in the world, like maybe you don't need to spend so much time on self-care, you know, maybe you can focus that energy outward. So it's almost like that same, that power that I was talking about before, the energy of our practice can be focused inward and focused outward. And I think we all have to decide how much we, how much energy we put into both based on who we are and where we're at. Yeah. I would love to hear just a little bit about your own self-care practices and how you personally find this balance. I don't have find them. I, I'm, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's a constant struggle. I don't know. I, I mean, COVID has been helpful for me because it made me slow down. I was traveling constantly and teaching all over the place, which was amazing and fun, but it didn't really give me a daily routine, which I need for my, my physical body and my mind really benefit from a daily routine. And so I've been able to add in a longer practice time, physical exercise. I'm doing a lot of strengthening work and cardio that I wasn't doing before. Like I ride my bike every day. I get into my garden almost every day. And I think that that's a gift that I, I hadn't, I didn't realize I needed, but I also don't like to separate work and self-care as if they're separate things. I don't feel like, I feel like when I'm enjoying my work and when it's useful, that it's a, it's a form of service too. And, and I, I don't, I think, I think to go back like to this the whole topic and I talk about power, it's really about prana too. Like we all have a certain amount of prana, right? Energy. And it feels to me like all we can ever do is decide where we focus that energy. So you can focus on taking care of my, you know, taking care of myself by eating and sleeping and um, doing my asana practice, my meditation, all that. I can focus outward, my prana outwardly by teaching and working, you know, cause I, I run a nonprofit and I write a lot and I teach a lot. So I think it's a question of finding balance, but also understanding that you're always making a choice. It's almost the only choice we have in life, to be honest, where you put your attention, where do you put that, where do you put that energy? If you could wave a magic wand and influence yoga teacher trainings around the world, what would be like the one top priority? Mm, I have so many, like I, that is, that's the hardest question you've asked me today because I literally, that's all I think about is like all the things that yoga teachers could be doing and learning and 
basically this whole book is that. And like, I really, I guess I would say, if I say one thing, I would say accessibility. I mean, that's really been the focus of my work. And, and I just broaden it slightly to just say like, to understand that yoga is a universal, everyone can do it. And it's up to us as teachers to find a way to share the teachings, right? Like that's on us. And, and the answer I think is through creativity, actually being creative and, and opening ourselves. So your work is around accessibility. You have this great new book. If listeners want to find out more about you, what would, where would be the best place to look? Let's see. So they can find out about the book at my website, juvenaheyman.com. I actually have some free practices for people who buy the book. So there's like video practices that are in the book that I shared and also a meditation, but also accessibleyoga.org is a great place to look at the nonprofit and find out about our programming. You know, we have ambassadors and conferences and, and monthly events and also the Another one is accessibleyogatraining.com where I offer the accessible yoga training and other incredible programs through that platform. Busy online learning right now. Great. We'll put all of those links in the show notes so it'll people can choose which direction they want to go or check out everything. Thank you so much for this conversation and thank you so much for writing this book. I really think that every yoga teacher needs to read it. Yeah, I appreciate that so much. And I really appreciate your questions. Like, to be honest, I've, I've been talking about the book a lot with different people and you really focused in on the, the sutras in particular, which I thought was really interesting. It must be a passion of yours because I could feel, I could feel that, you know, I could feel your interest in that work. And it, it's, it's amazing. I would also really recommend people study directly from the sutras, like get multiple translations and the Gita and just read them. Like you can read my book too, but I'm like, you can just read the source text. It's incredible, right? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks for talking to me about the book. You know, the saying slash curse, may you live in interesting times. Well, yeah, welcome to 2022. I think Jeevana's book is so timely for helping us make sense of the craziness and the chaos. Because of the podcast, I get sent a lot of yoga books, and very few of them do I recommend quite this highly. It's sweet, it's funny, it's poignant, and it's most definitely pertinent. As I record this episode, everything is up in the air here. My daughter's school has closed for the next few days because 40% of the students were absent today. We're trying to escape the cold and head somewhere warm for a week, and I can see our chances of doing that fading pretty quickly. This comes just weeks after the school board voted to close her school permanently at the end of this year. So for context, this is a public Montessori school that we spent three years getting her into. So to say that I'm heartbroken and have just so much feelings and so much stuff coming up right now would be an understatement. For me, these are most definitely interesting times. At the same time, my mental health is better than it's been since before the pandemic started. There are a lot of factors at play, but since I talked about it in some previous episodes, I wanted to specifically mention the social media fast I did in September, sorry, December of 2021. Reducing the amount of input and different opinions to process on a daily basis has been magical for me. At the end of the month, I returned to social media, but I did so on a very limited basis. And I've definitely kicked the habit of scrolling when I'm bored just for something to do. 
I tend to spend five to 10 minutes responding to comments and that's pretty much it. And I don't feel really drawn to it anymore. So that's really cool. It's also been really, like I said, amazing for my mental health. I'm so happy I decided to re-examine my relationship with social media by taking this break. One thing I'm noticing as part of this whole process is that reduced stimulation leads to more sensitivity and an improved ability to focus and, and to meditate. Now, this isn't exactly surprising. People have been saying this. People are saying this all the time. But it's one thing to know something in a intellectual way, and it's another thing to know it on a personal, visceral, experiential level. And this is probably why so many people are attracted to yoga retreats, because it's a format to set those boundaries and to really give yourself the space to go deeper. So if you've been feeling off, if you've been feeling like something's not quite right, just throw this invitation out there. Consider taking a break from social media just to see if that changes anything for you as well. Whatever you end up doing with social media, this is your weekly reminder to check in with yourself about your personal yoga practice, whatever that looks like for you. Ask yourself, is it nourishing for you now as you are now? Are you allowing it to change and to adapt as you change and as the world changes? And does it reflect your vision, your values, and your potential? I hope so. I hope so. I feel like mine is always a work in progress. And that's what I love about it. I love that there's always more to explore and more to learn. And it's like a relationship. So if not, if you do this check-in and you realize, ah, oh, this is not where it could be, this is not touching on its potential, what would it take to get you there? Now, just because you ask the question doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get a clear answer, but I believe that asking the question regularly, putting your attention here regularly is the important part. That's all for this week, friend. Thank you for listening and thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.